Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdcast episode three. We are going to be talking about the Harry Potter film franchise today. Uh, with me as always is my boy Austin Bennett. Say hello, Austin. That's me. Hello. <laughs> Henry and Bo were not able to make it this evening, so we were lucky enough to find two experts in the field of all things Potter. First off is one of my oldest friends, Daniel Wilkerson. AKA the keg. <laughs> Welcome, Daniel. Hey, how you doing? Great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. And my bandmate and good friend and cousin, actually, Kevin Sullivan. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks. Always good to be talking about all things Potter related. Oh, yeah. Is that the right way to put it? That sounds kind of strange. I've never said that before. <laughs> all things I mean... Potter. Potter. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, you know how we do this. We're just going to start off with a couple awesome questions here. I don't know about awesome, but they are questions. So first one, we'll go to Austin first. When did you first get into Harry Potter? And have you read the books? Well, I'm at the perfect age of 25 to where I essentially cannot remember life without Harry Potter. Um, the first book, I believe, was released in 97. Don't quote me on that, but the film Philosopher's Stone or Sorcerer's Stone, whichever you prefer, um, was released in 2001. And I still remember getting that VHS tape one year for Christmas. I believe it was Christmas of 2001. And it was obviously a great Christmas present because here I am. How many? 20 years later, actually. Can you believe it? 20 years later, still talking about. Yes, yeah, but still talking about Harry Potter all those years later. Um I think you had a second part to that question. Have I read all the books? And absolutely, twice through. Wow. Impressive. Most impressive. Uh, Daniel, why don't you follow up? When did you get into Harry Potter and have you read the books? See, uh, I got into Harry Potter about, the uh, what was it, second grade? A long, long time ago, right? When um, I, think I think we were right about seven book. then, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel it was like um, either right when the th uh, third book came out um was when uh, i was being read to me uh, by a uh, teacher um in school but uh but yeah after that though i started reading them on my own for a while and then man i've uh gotten all the way through the books and then all the way through the movies too good stuff so, yeah. kevin um yeah so my mom um actually attempted to read them to me um when i was in kindergarten and it kind of went a little over my head so when I got into first grade, we started and um, that's when like it was just such a bonding moment for my mom and I because like we were like in them together and it like got to a point later on. Well, yes, I've, I've read all the books um, and I think that's and that's when I originally got, you know, exposed. And then it was like it was great because like within a couple of years, that's when I started seeing like the the trailers and stuff in theaters. And I was always like it was always like November that a movie would come out from them originally. And so it was just like waiting on that. And when like finally seeing it was just incredible. It blew my mind and it was like everything I could have hoped it would ever be, you know? For sure. I, um, our aunt Wendy got me the first two, I believe. And I remember I was, I mean, it must've been like six or seven. I can't remember when the first one came out, but I remember getting into bed. It was dark one night and I was little and, you know, kind of scared of my own shadow still. 
And I opened up the first book and the first chapter was called The Boy Who Lived. And I just closed that thing up. and was like, nope, and just put it back <laughs> on the shelf. <laughs> Not doing that. Um, so, but eventually I started reading them and they, they were great. And what's funny is I remember when I was living in North Carolina, Kevin, you and your family came down to visit me and BJ came in one day and because you guys had the books before I did. I think it was book like maybe four or five or whatever. And I had started reading and he was like, we're here for three days. You can read as much as you want. And I heard, okay. Well, I, I took a break at one point. I was watching TV. He's like, why did you stop reading the books? <laughs> I was just like, oh, <laughs> I guess I should get back to that. But uh, it wasn't that serious, but it was, it, it's just one of those funny memories. Um, but anyways, next question. Um, we'll go to Daniel first on this one. What are your opinions on the overall tone of the series? And when I say the series, I'm particularly concerned about the movies, in your opinion. Let me see. Uh, so the movies, um, so the t- so the tone for the movies has this kind of arc to it. Like, you know, it starts off, you know, a bit lighthearted at first. Um, and as it uh, goes down through the movies, it gets darker and darker until you're at the Deathly Hallows. And then everything is uh, <laughs> and everything is um, everything. Uh, the whole wrestling world just gets uprooted. Yeah, and it gets, um, it gets rough by six and seven. <laughs> oh yeah, like like once uh, once Umbridge takes uh, uh once Umbridge takes Hogwarts, then you know everything just starts going downhill from there. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, that being said, I enjoyed it for sure, man. I'm with you on that, Kevin. What about you? So um, when I was thinking about this, I was like, um, the tone. Yes, I I definitely agree with Daniel as far as it starting off lighthearted and it does get darker, but what you really come to like recognize about Harry Potter is that at the end of the day, there is always hope. Like even in the darkest of times, you know, when Dumbledore is sitting there saying, you know, like, um, you know, there's always light in darkness, you know, no matter what it's like, that's the kind of vibe that it, it gets to me. And so that tone really does, I think, reflect throughout the movie franchise is that there is still hope and it, you know, it goes along with the story in the books. Austin, expand on that. And I want to tee this up for you a little bit. Last week when we were talking about the Phantom Menace, we were discussing a little bit about the themes and the, um, like the undercurrent themes of the entire Star Wars franchise. And my answer to one of that was hope. So that's interesting that this is kind of parallel and I can see that Hope and things like teamwork, hard work, stuff like that. Those really are big underpinnings of this whole thing. What what say you, Austin? I yeah, I was going to touch on something that Kevin said um, with the help of or the idea of hope and a Dumbledore quote. I'm pretty sure it's Dumbledore came to mind. Where I believe it's at the end of either movie number four or five, where they're in the common room. And Dumbledore says to Harry, help will always come to those who ask for it. I don't think that's a direct quote, but I know I'm close. And my thing is, and Daniel said the same thing as well, you know, there is that childlike innocence of the first about two films, I'd say. And then gradually we, you know, we as an audience also mature with the movies as they progress. And for me, it was the sense of family is what you make of it in that series we see as Harry struggles with, you know, the concept of not having a family and the only family he has is absolutely despicable. 
you know, they're just awful people, especially towards him. But, you know, he eventually finds comfort and family in the Weasleys, especially. And there are mm -hmm. other characters like Sirius and Lupin who kind of have that parental father figure role. But I think Harry Potter is more all about family. Hope mm -hmm. as well. But family is definitely what you make of it, I think, is a strong tone and a strong characteristic of all of these films. Yeah, perhaps family that you choose and not family that is blood related to you so much. I, I think that's a good call. I agree with that's, that. That's huge. That's huge. Does anybody want to expand on that real quick? Or? Um, I think I guess, Austin kind of said it all. I was going to say, I think you nailed it, man. Um, <laughs> I have <okay>. the notes. <laughs> <laughs> the notes are strong with this one. Yes. Uh, Kevin, to you now, what are your thoughts on the music of the series and specifically John Williams's score? So um, the music in Harry Potter is everything like like going from, you know, reading those books and everything like there's always that trepidation when you're about to go and watch a film based on a book, like a book that you really, truly love. And it's like something for me that throughout just captures that magic all the more. Like, yes, it's a movie about magic, but John Williams' score like adds the magic to it. I mean, just those really subtle like notes in the very, very beginning. And then like going on to like Hedwig's theme and everything. And then like, like the whole score around the Quidditch matches, like you're just so hyped, like based off all of those. And it's like, <laughs> but then like coming in really somber when, you know, you're dealing with like things like the chess match in the first film. And then, you know, when you're yeah, like on from there, when you finally see Voldemort for the first time, I mean, it's just like, it captures the mood and emotion so much more. And I remember that being a soundtrack that like, my friend um my friend had and i just like it was listening to the tunes myself like because it just like captured that emotion like and i could visualize myself there in the movie just by listening 100% so. i it's funny how almost every single movie john williams does the score for whether it's star wars whether it's harry potter whether it's jurassic park not only can you hear the song immediately and picture exactly in the movie when it shows up but it's also like its own character like almost this astral presence in the background because it's just so visceral and almost tangible like they almost it almost interacts with the textures of the visuals and the character it's it's it, personally i can't say enough about john williams it is he's i am so happy to live in the age of john williams and have gotten as much as his stuff as we have austin what say you um a couple things yes uh i remember also having the soundtrack the cd soundtrack to philosopher's yeah. stone and i used to drive my whole entire family up a wall with it because i used to love listening to the soundtrack <laughs> my sisters hated me for it because i would like play it in the car i loved it so much and that's a long soundtrack it's a long cd it's over an hour long so um yeah, I think the music of John Williams speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. Even as far back as Jaws and before that, I'm not too familiar with any work before then. Um, yeah, it is a character on its own. And whenever I hear Hedwig's theme, especially, I'm taken back to being six years old, watching Harry Potter for the first time. It puts you in that moment, not just 
in the film, but like where you were when you first heard it. It's a lovely soundtrack. And funny enough, I didn't realize this till taking notes for this talk that John Williams only composed the music for the first three films. Mm, I but did not it's know actually, that. I, I, again, I didn't know that either, but I think it's incredible how you hear, you know, callbacks and influences to his original score throughout the remaining movies that he does not compose for. Very similar to Jurassic Park in that sense, where I think he only did the score for the first, maybe the second one. And then after that, it's like original score by, and then like, you know, the actual composer for that specific film comes in, but yeah, no, definitely. Um, Daniel, anything to add, my friend? Uh, yeah. Um, one of the things, and uh, Kevin touched on this a little bit. Um, one of the things that I was really surprised about uh, from uh, going to the books was how well the song, how well the soundtrack, uh, how well related to the Harry uh, to the Harry Potter world. I uh, I was actually very surprised by that. Like I didn't like I was I was wondering how are they going to get like the music to work? You know, because as we were reading it, we didn't really have music going on in the back of our head. No, and uh, it just fit. It just fits so incredibly well. But yeah, that's uh, that's really all I have to add. Uh, everyone else uh, got it pretty well. Awesome. I wanted awesome. to add. I wanted to add one thing is that I actually recently read *Philosopher's Stone* back in I think October of 2020, and I started realizing that I think at least with the first book in my head, you cannot read that book after seeing the movie and hearing the soundtrack and <laughs> not have both just playing in your head at the same time. They accompany each other each other so well almost perfectly so very that very was, similar that was to uh lord of the rings for me like if i ever go back and reread even the hobbit I, I know it's lord of the rings specific music that's playing in my head but any tolkien i ever read now is just bar, 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 bar. <laughs> <laughs> funny story too i think actually the first time i went and saw sorcerer's stone in theaters was at your birthday kevin was I think you yes, had a birthday yes. up in uh, the Egyptian? That was that was cool. At Arundel Mills, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. fun fun facts all around. All right. Oh, yeah. um, oh, um, oh, if I could just add one one thing. Um, by all means. On all the scores, um, I think that, um, and this is just a theory. I could be totally wrong, but um, I think that John Williams, um, where he started to branch, like obviously you have like the really epic themes in movies like Indiana Jones and you know and Star Wars and all that stuff. But I think one movie that really set him up to make the Harry Potter film like scores and stuff, I think was E.T. Because mm -hmm. that soundtrack to me is just like is so in tune with emotion. And it's funny because Spielberg actually um, that was his first film ever, you know, um, wanting to have an, a more of an emotion based film. So John Williams score really fits that emotion and i think his evolution really came through from et to harry potter in my opinion i think he has john williams has like some 29 oscar nominations like if there's any question as to whether he is the goat when it comes to to oscar <laughs> score or to just movie scores in general austin uh let's move on to okay what are some of the best performances from the series and before you answer the caveat here is not who are your favorite characters, but who actor or actress wise do you think brought it the best 
who interpreted the character the best. You can take this any way you want. What uh, what are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Well, I actually interpreted your question perfectly. Then I have fantastic. Five, <laughs> I have five examples, and I won't. I don't have like essays on them at all. Um, Damn. But just looking looking at my, <laughs> looking at my notes here, the first one I wrote down was actually Gilderoy Lockhart. Mm-hmm. I think <laughs> at, as a kid, I was just thoroughly annoyed by him. Just beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. But I absolutely love that character, not necessarily referring to his like portrayal of the character from the novel, but just seeing this man be one hired as a complete joke to Dumbledore, making a quick reference to the book. Sure. Um, he's so far up his own ass. It's just comical <laughs> to me to watch this guy just be like an absolute loser but like still taking all the credit from like all these famous witches and wizards and just getting slapped in the face throughout the entire movie. It's just perfect. And I laugh at it now. And Kenneth Branagh's um, kind of over the top performance of it really sold it to me too. Mm-hmm. I thought he, he did a great mm-hmm. job. Uh, next I had, I just want to do a quick shout out. I'm not sure if he's like in my like top five, uh, Alistair Moody, Brendan mm. Gleeson. Oh yes. yeah. One thing I really liked is that, especially in Goblet of Fire, he's portraying essentially two people combined into one character because he's under the Polyjuice potion the entirety of that film until the very end. So yeah, it is kind uh, of interesting that you have Marty, to put... A, Marty Crouch Jr., right? Yes. Correct. So it's interesting that he has to kind of put the head of another character into the body of someone else. I think it's done beautifully. Um he might be Again. like what you were talking about with like Christopher Lee and uh, you know as Count Dooku in Star Wars. I would say Brandon Gleason as Mad Eye Moody is probably that guy for me because he is not in those movies enough. He's so good mm-hmm. at being Mad Eye Moody and just that. Oh, Potter, what are we gonna do? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> love and it. Another character I grew to love with age was actually Umbridge. Mm. <laughs> she's she's so despicable and so evil, but just. Um, what's her name? Uh, I mean, I might get it wrong. Excuse me if I do. Imelda Stoughton mm-hmm. is her actress's name. And you're meant to hate this woman, and you do. It's perfect. It really is. Like, you're so happy at, when she's carried off by the centaurs in the Forbidden Forest. At least I am. <laughs> I don't know um, anybody who talks about the Harry Potter films who doesn't immediately say, God, I hate Umbridge. Like, I hate yeah, But you're, you're meant to. And like she easily could have been like the most like lovable villain, which I guess she is. But it's like you love to hate her. Mm-hmm. At least I do. Oh yeah. Um, I'll touch on Lupin real quick. I feel like he's a fan favorite of most fans. Um, he's again a Christopher Lee example where we just need more of him on screen. I love how calm and collective he is through all of his scenes. I love his interactions with Harry. I think he really is that first taste that Harry gets of like a real role model father figure. And it's a shame that again, he's kind of shafted at the end of the third movie. Yeah. Um, And this is something that again, taking these notes down, I realized Rupert Grint steals the show throughout like the entire first half of Harry Potter. Like I go back and watch like certain scenes from especially Philosopher's Stone and Chamber of Secrets. Rupert Grint is just on point. As Ron Weasley, I really is. I think he's just not necessarily over the top, but I love how kind of colorful of a character he is. And I think he does the best job at portraying like the widest range of emotions and feelings like in the present moment. 
that's just me. I, I could be alone on that. I know like I'm with I, you. I know like I know like they're universally loved, like the main three cast members. But I really think Ron steals the show more so than Harry and Hermione do. Bloody and, hell. <laughs> and just as a quick shout out, uh Jason Isaacs as Lucius Malfoy. He's so good. He's so intimidating to me. Like he is like a real threat to me in those movies. Not so much like the main antagonist. Like Lucius Malfoy, I think, is someone to fear. And to see his progression through the movies too, especially in the last couple, where he's just like you can just see the visible like terror. Like, I don't think a lot of actors could have sold just the position the Malfoys were in towards the end with like, you know, serving Voldemort and him showing up at their um you know, at their manner and stuff and kind of taking it over. Like, I think he's just, he, he does a lot with no words in the past, in the last few films. I think that's, I love, he's I a, love he's Jason a Isaacs. broken man by the end of the series. And For sure. you can see the intimidation just throughout his entire body. Whenever dump, uh, not dump door, excuse me. Voldemort is just within the same room as him or even the thought of him. It's like, give me your wand punk. He's like, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Daniel, why don't you uh, keep this show on the road? What do you say? See, um, for me, actually, it was uh, well, Umbridge. Um, Umbridge won. Uh, like, you know, Tinkin also said, like, love to, you love to hate that character. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see. So that, that was one. Uh, Alan Rickman. Um, mm. I He did a, I thought he did a fantastic job of Snape. <laughs> Always, like, my friend. <laughs> like, um, and he was, and uh, he was actually told by, um, by uh, Rowling, uh, about, um, he was actually told about Rowling, uh, about his past, you know, mm. about uh, about this character's past with Lily, and uh, he was told that like day one, <laughs> wow. and um, he had to keep that in mind while he was doing everything, while he was uh, acting, like. <laughs> That's such a great thing too that like he mm-hmm. he held that for all those years and didn't like nobody knew until they read Deathly Hallows what what that it was all about and everything. And he really like you in the books and in in the movies they really do a great job of like you don't trust him. You know that he's like Dumbledore vouches for him, <laughs> but you don't trust him at all and everybody's like no 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 Snape he's fine. He's fine. I mean, he was a Death Eater, but he's fine. He's, he's you know, and you're like, wait, is he was he was a what? <laughs> I'm a I know, what? <laughs> I know a couple people who are like genuinely shocked of how that turned out. Just the reveal of Snape's like true past and like his true identity. Like some people did not see that coming at all. It kind of amazed me actually. I was like, oh, that makes sense. Like when I saw it, at least. It was so. one of the better character backstories that we ever got and like i never really perk up when i watch exposition or flashback scenes but whenever they're doing like the occlumency and stuff like that and they start talking about his past i'm like listening for like clues and just all the little through lines and stuff and the probably shout out to whoever played young snape in those flashbacks too because i mean they just whoever cast that did it perfectly i thought but uh did you have any others daniel or uh, no no that was it for me actually Kevin, what do you got? Um, so, uh, uh, Daniel, I'm going to agree with you on Alan Rickman. Obviously, my shirt says it all. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, and, I didn't uh, see that. I would have taken it. And I got a uh, tattoo as well. 
because nice. I love <laughs> and, and Alan Rickman, I think, played him so well. Um, I love, uh, not to go too far on a further question down the list, but um, I do love um, uh, uh, Richard Harris playing Dumbledore. Like, I just thought he was incredible. He was so caring in that role, like, in that role, and he, like, bonded so well with Harry in the first two films, just loved um, R.I.P. I really wish he could have done the whole series, but um, also, uh, I'm going to throw, um, let's see, I'm going to throw um, Ivana Lynch uh, playing Luna Lovegood is, like, mm-hmm. just one of those characters, like, she's such a gem, and it's, like, it's not who I pictured, like, it, like not who I, like, pictured to play her, but, like, I just think she nailed it. You know, she like she really did it for me in that, you know, um, then other shout outs as well. Um, I love um, Matthew Lewis as Neville. Um, yes. I think Neville Longbottom <laughs> is just somebody that like you don't see him being anything at all when we first get into the film franchise. And it's just like, but by the end, like Neville's a goddamn hero. And there is just no doubt that he is a Gryffindor through and through, you know. Oh, it's 100%. Like, it takes a true to Gryffindor to pull the sword out of that. 100%, yes. And then, I, sh- um, I ship uh, Neville and Luna hard, too. That's like the perfect matchup. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> do yeah. you? Who uh, else would they have ended up with? Cho? Like, oh, Neville? Okay, Neville. I can Lavender understand. Brown? She died. Well, she died. <laughs> <laughs> oh, R.I.P. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, let me uh, She go got for... mauled to death by a werewolf, too. Poor... Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was rough. Um, and then Maggie Smith as McGonagall is just wonderful. Uh, she just like she just she got the strictness, but also like that caring nature at the same time. Like she nailed that. And um, and I will end on this one, or actually two more. Robbie Coltrane as Hagrid. Yep, was wonderful. Shouldn't have like, said that. Should not have said that. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I just love at the, um, you know, at the end of the second film, when he comes back in the great hall and like, like prior to all the applause, like, he's just like, he's like, I just wanted to say, if it weren't for you three, I'd still be in there. So here's me thanking you, you know, just like, just so like humble, wonderful. And I will end. Um, I thought that uh, Helena Bodum Carter uh, playing Bellatrix Lestrange was a great one, too. I mean, 100%. she captured that, and she just she just does the damn thing. Whenever she's in a role, she just does it. You know, I I am in one hundred percent disagreement, Kevin. I apologize. I really, I hot take. I I hot take. I wish I could. I I don't, but I wish I did. Just skip all the scenes that have uh, Bellatrix Lestrange in them, apart from Order of the Phoenix. Um, she's it's a part of a topic I'll touch a little bit later on, but mm-hmm. I was never really threatened by her and i think it kind of came to a case of maybe overacting i don't mm-hmm. know if that's something i could actually argue i just did not like that character i did not want her like on my tv screen I just don't... <laughs> well probably because she kills serious so that just you know puts you on the wrong foot immediately she... <laughs> yes. I, also, I also think that's a beautiful scene though so like oh yeah it's crazy uh, to think that those two were cousins cousins mm-hmm. yeah they cousins. were cousins yeah. yes 
but um, I'll pick Spencer, it up. Right? Don't be getting any ideas. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll I'll pick it up right from there though. Beatrix is strange in Deathly Hallows Part One, towards the very end, where she's carving in mud blood into Hermione's arm, and she's just like screaming in agony. Like that scene is specific. Like I'm not a huge fan of Part One in in its entire, just because it's a big like setup film, and I that's not their fault. I get why they did it and everything, but that scene in particular, if there's that whole movie, that scene in particular sits with me just like to show like how evil she was. And I, I, I love, you know, it, and it's fine if it doesn't land for you. That's, that's everybody perceives it different differently, but I thought her like just Helena Bonham Carter is so good at those like over the top, like just batshit crazy roles, whether it's like the, the, the lady who bakes all the pies in Sweeney Todd or, you know, yeah. just any of the roles that she's ever been in, in like Fight Club, things like that. Like she's she's just so good at that, in my opinion. And I, I thought she played that great. I can't really argue with any of your guys's, you know, picks. Yeah. They're all so strong. I mean, I'm so glad that we touched on as many as we did. Um, I'll I'll just bring up. I think Gary Oldman and his limited screen time as Sirius Black was great. I oh, think yes. we didn't, uh, besides Rupert Grint in the first movie, which I totally agree. Rupert Grint is probably one of the more underappreciated actors in the whole franchise. Um, the uh, two Weasley parents, I absolutely adore. Yes. Like so much. He's just like, like Arthur Weasley. I could watch the scene where he shows up in Chamber of Secrets at the, the, the breakfast table. And he's just like, who are you? <laughs> like, <laughs> tell, tell me the precise function of a rubber duck. <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. So those two, and just like quick, I think, I mean, you guys nailed them. Alan Ruckman, Richard Harris. I got to shout out Michael Gambon though. We'll probably talk more about this a little later on, but like, it's unfortunate Richard Harris died. I don't know anybody else who probably could have came. And there's probably some actors who could have. But he really took that role, made it his own. There wasn't this like weird lag. Like you watch Prisoner of Azkaban and it's like, ah, it's a little bit different, whatever. But I think especially as the series went on with Richard Harris being as old as he was, I don't know if he could have done some of those scenes and stuff. Like there would have been a tremendous amount of body doubles, kind of like Christopher Lee in the, the Hobbit movies where you could just tell he was so old and you know damn well that's not him fighting the necromancer at Gundabad and everything. So that kind of stuff. Um, so Michael Gambin, shout out um, to you. Um, and I got to, I got to bring up Ralph Fiennes as Voldemort. I thought they did. Don't a, say the name. <laughs> they, uh, they did a, they set him up for what almost a full four movies before they really brought out Voldemort. And I didn't really necessarily when I first watched it, you know, as a younger person really appreciate kind of the character design and stuff. I was like, he doesn't have a nose what's going on here and all this stuff. But then you start thinking about it. It's like, not only was he a parcel tongue, but he literally broke his soul and his essence into seven parts, which is like unheard of, even in the wizarding world. Like this is like completely, you know, just dark, dark stuff that he was doing. And I don't know, like as it went on and everything, like the way I it's, it's subtle things, like the way he held his wand, almost like a composer does, like the amount of respect and just kind of like the, I guess you could say like the, just the 
raw talent. Like he is basically Tom Riddle was kind of the Anakin Skywalker of the wizarding world for me, where he's just like so powerful and so raw talent that, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's awesome to watch. And, um, I forget the, uh, the actor's name, but the guy who played Wormtongue, I thought probably perfectly cast, you know? Oh yeah. He just naturally kind of, unfortunately for him, and I'm not trying to make him feel bad by any means. He, you know, he doesn't care about my opinion, obviously, but like he looks the part of like this kind of like rodent, like, like Weasley creature type person who would have sold out the Potters to, to Voldemort when shit was going down. So, uh, you know, I thought he did a great job and, I mean, really just all the teachers. I thought Emma Thompson as Trelawney. Thank you. And Flitwick. I'm forgetting. Warwick Davis as Flitwick. I mean, the list just goes on and on. We were uh-huh. really spoiled with the quality of uh, people in these films. Even somebody like, you know, I didn't realize until Twilight came out, Robert Pattinson is Cedric Diggory. So we got to see Edward Cullen murdered before he was even Edward Cullen, which is kind of (laughs) wild to think about. I'm sure a lot of haters probably were fans of that once they realized it. But I mean, he's, he's a top notch talent was just not even, doesn't even crack the top probably 20 characters. Most people bring up. So that's just speaks to, I think the level of performances we got. Um, But let's keep this thing rolling. So, did I start that with Austin? Let's start this one with you Daniel. All right. Who would you have liked to see more from in the films? And who do you think you might have gotten too much of, if anybody? You see, uh, so so this question, is this people who uh, who were in the films? Or was it, uh, you talking about people who were like cut from the films too? Y- yeah, so like characters that you might have known about in the books or heard about, you know, through one mean or another, like whether it was just a background character. Like, is there anybody that comes to mind that you would have really liked to be like, oh, that might be a cool character? Peeves. Yeah, Peeves. I was waiting for it. Peeves. I was waiting for it. <laughs> oh, 100%. Nailed it. Because, <laughs> uh, because, um, in so when they first had the initial trailer for the first one, right? You know, he was in the trailer. He he was in he was in there. I'm like, yeah, Peeves is gonna be in there. And then like I sat through the movie and don't get wrong, you know, don't get wrong. I was I was really excited for the movie and it was a great movie. But uh, I remember afterwards asking myself, yo, where's Peeves? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, and then um, of course they didn't have it in the first one. They didn't keep him at all for the rest of them. And that's something I would have liked to have seen more of. I would have liked to have seen more of him. Oh, great, but, um, great, great call. Uh, Anybody else, sir? Um, let's see. I, I would have liked to see, um, like two of my favorite characters throughout the series, like, and, and you did see them, but I wanted more of them. Fred and George. Like, I always want more Fred yes. and George. Like you cannot go wrong. Like, um, and they, you know, I love the sequence in the third one where they're giving Harry the map and stuff like the Marauders map and really like, you know, taking him under his wing and everything else. It's like, they were the the original Hogwarts badasses. I mean, they just did their thing and just like, I would like to have seen a little bit more than that. But of course, then you got a ton of that in um, Order of the Phoenix when they're just like fucking causing mayhem, which I loved, you know? It was the perfect standoff, it really was. And to happen to Umbridge of all characters, it's just like the icing on the cake there. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> Austin, what say you? Um, I think I might have touched on it, but I'll take any scene with uh, Harry and Lupin just mm-hmm. any day. I He was the one professor I wished, the professor professor for uh, Defense Against the Dark Arts that I just wish stuck around. I know it was a recurring theme that every year we got a new professor, but oh my God, I just want, I wanted him to stick around so bad. And at the time, I don't think I had read the book. So, you know, here I was watching the whole movie thinking like, oh, he's going to come back. No, he doesn't. All right. So, I have st- others, but like Lupin is definitely like number one. It stinks because a couple of mine that like would come to mind are like Sirius and Voldemort and even like just because of who played him, Rufus Scrimgeour and stuff like that. But it's like all these characters were not in the books that much and really don't make sense to come in any more than they would have been or like were already in the films. Um, One like kind of random one just for me personally, because I really would have liked to see their, and it's, it's a subjective thing. I mean, I think they did have enough Ginny Weasley in the movies, but I would have really liked to see them hammer that relationship home, especially in the latter movies a little bit, just so it didn't feel so abrupt. Cause I think if you watch the movies and you get to like, four or five and i mean he's still crushing on cho a bit and stuff like that but like i i think you almost get the sense that oh he's going to end up with hermione because obviously that's what happens in every movie you know or a book you know he goes with the main chick who's badass and smarter than everybody and stuff like that like that that makes sense but i'm so happy that she ended up with ron because ron was like his og like ride or die since day one so i'm so glad he got his his due but yeah i think Ginny weasley a little bit just for the sake of like trying to really bolster that relationship as much as possible but again these are what like at least 700 page to thousand page books being condensed into two to two and a half hours so i totally understand that there's just in an ideal world each one of these movies would have been four and a half hours long and take like an entire evening to watch and yeah i i would be here for it but Ugh. um Real quick, and I'll open this up to anybody who wants to jump in. Is there anybody who that you saw too much of, and you were just like, just go away? Well, I already said mine. My hot take of Bellatrix. I just, <laughs> I, I just don't enjoy the character. I'm sorry, it's such a hot take to you, Kevin, especially. Wrong. But like, well, no, it just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just I. She's just the one that immediately comes to mind. I just, I don't want to see her. I also, I, I just don't find myself really caring for um he's in the seventh movie um he's the uh the thief the real short guy i can't remember his name now oh um, mundungus mundungus yeah Fletcher. he was yes. such a late addition that i'm kind of just like why are you here you, like <laughs> we didn't need this why are we introducing like a character that we don't know about this or like this late into the franchise only to have him pop up for one more scene which has happened to be like, oh, this is what I did with the locket. And like, other than plot convenience, like, what was your purpose? Was he even in any other movie other than part one Deathly Not House? movies. He was supposed not. to be, his original introduction in the books was in the fifth. Okay. Oh, okay. And then, then you knew him oh. in from the fifth to the sixth to the seventh. But in the films, I guess they only added him in the seventh for that part, because that is what happened in the books. But yeah, I, I hate it when they like they're like, 
oh, we're going to eliminate this character because it saves time, but actually, really, we needed him, so now we're going to put him back in and then out of no context. So it's like, it's your, like-, like your bedroom closet is too full with shit in it, and then you're just, like, <laughs> shoving more stuff and, like, leaning on it, like, get in there. Yes. And, oh, actually- and he stinks, too, and, you know, he can go to hell, in my opinion, too, because he's the reason Mad-Eye Moody died. Like, let's not mince words. Yes. Yes, hundred percent. Justice for Mad Eye. <laughs> yes, there, there is a young Mad Eye show out there. There's also a fan fiction that I would love to write. It's like a Dean Thomas Kingsley Shacklebolt like or like in Africa Wizarding World type show that I would love to make. But oh my god, that'd be great. When, oh, oh, uh, can I go um, one? I one character that I forgot to mention that I would have actually liked to see a little bit more because I thought I just thought she did, like nailed it as an actress. Um, um the one who played professor sprout oh like, yeah like like with the whole like the mandrake scene and she's oh, like you know, just leave him there he'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> yes, just like, she um she was on the graham norton show with daniel radcliffe and at one point she was talking and uh they were like apparently they needed a swear jar for her like around the kids and she'd be like oh ooh, sorry <laughs> I, i've seen that video recently i love it oh i know what you're talking about she's good. so great good call and she's still recognized in public, which is great. Like every character is recognized, which I yes. think is great. They're so synonymous with their roles. The actors are. So this question, I guess, kind of plays off of everything we've just been talking about a little bit. But Kevin, are there elements you thought could have been executed better, whether they're thematic, set pieces, what have you? What do you think could have been done better? Um. See, I... <laughs> I only saw the, so my favorite book was the seventh. Okay. And it, it became my, my favorite book later because I listened to the audio done by Jim Dale, who was just incredible. And so like I would listen and I've read the seventh book probably more than any other in the series. And it's like um, when they went to do the two part movies, part one, like I would just get so angry that I had to just turn it off. Like, that was for me. And like, so the whole like build up prior to, um, you know, prior to the scene where they're all like, you know, the, the seven potters and everything, it's just like, I did think one element that they added that I thought was actually way more noble in the movie was actually um, when like Hedwig got out of the cage to like save Harry and that's how she died. But in the book, it was like, um, sitting there, you know, she was just in her cage, dead on the ground, and it was like very pitiful. So I like that they added that. Um, I don't think that they like they, they played a lot on the journey aspect, and I think that it was very important to do that. But obviously, you know, in part one, that just got very boring to see on screen. And at one point, Harry and Hermione are just like dancing together, which I'm just like, what are we doing here? Like, oh, in the this, tent, yeah, it was yes. just like. Just listen to the radio because they're like, you know, depressed and have all sorts of paranoid PTSD going on. Yes. And I want to bring up, too, that in the sixth film, in the very beginning, there's this really odd sequence where, like, Harry is, like, wandering about and about to, like, have a date with a girl and suddenly, like, on the train platform and suddenly Dumbledore just randomly shows up and goes, I'm sure she would have been a nice girl, Harry, but I need your help. Like, what? What? Where, like, when was Harry ever like going and like dating or like exploring to that extent? Like, I don't know. That just weirded me out. Like, 
I watched a strange beat, but probably meant to just really highlight. I would just assume David Yates just trying to really highlight just how separate and different he is. And like, he can't be a normal human being. Cause of course we don't know until the very, very end of part two of deathly hallows that he is in fact a horcrux this whole time. Dumbledore's yes. just been like leading this kid to his death for seven years. But what about, what about you, Austin? Oh, I was going to add real quick. I watched the cinema sins of both half blood Prince and chamber of secrets before this started. And uh, it's really funny bringing up the whole Dumbledore bit at the beginning of uh, half blood Prince, where he essentially cock blocks Harry. <laughs> 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 He's like, I'm sure it's like, I'm sure like she was like a fine girl or whatever he had said. Yeah. I was just kind of like, Oh, you dick. Well, he knows he's, he's like the dude from the league harry's just like but but dumbledore's like it is decided mm-hmm. he's like i've just learned to go with it <laughs> he just uh, like well, magics a chastity belt on him just trunk. harry's like i'm going with it <laughs> um what was the question again spencer i'm sorry is there anything in any of the movies or just in general throughout this franchise that you think could have been executed better Find out. <laughs> Consult um, the Book of Armaments. Um, the number one thing for me is the Quidditch World Cup in Goblet yes. of Fire. Yes. I yes. Just, that is like that to me, that is one of my favorite movies. It really is. It's been number one for the longest time. It's not anymore, but it was. But that's so disappointing. The fact that I think it's like the first almost half hour is centered all around the Quidditch World Cup. And there's this all this hype, all this build up towards it. And then Cornelius Fudge it's says, let the done. match begin. And it's just done. And I'm kind of like, what? Like we didn't get like a kind of like sequence of events or like a highlight reel or anything. Well, if I I'm guess not... the wizarding world doesn't have like instant replay, like football does, but like they don't have sports just... center. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have ESPN <laughs> sorcerer center. Um, but it, 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 correct me if I'm wrong in the books. Doesn't like, so the Irish win the World Cup that year. Ireland but, wins, yes. but Crum gets the snitch. But Crum yes. gets the snitch. Yes. Yeah, which it's, is a it's, huge problem. Like, it's, and it went on for uh, quite a while. If that's the case, because that means they would have had to score over 150 points, which is like what 16 plus goals with the quaffle. Right, but like yes. I, Ireland completely annihilates. Um, was it Bulgaria? Yes, Bulgaria. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I like again watching YouTube reviewers talk about it. It's like that's a problem that like a lot of people resonate with is just that like why does crumb catch the snitch i don't remember what the point difference was but it's just like if they only got like two or three more goals then like he could have caught the snitch and he is the best seeker in the world so Part why not wonders, just wait? and i was thinking about this because i was you know recently just watching sorcerer stone again and wood is giving him the rundown of the rules of quidditch and stuff and i was sitting there thinking to myself it's like are the seekers really paying attention to the score the whole time because remember is it um what's the guy's name who was running is it lee jordan who runs the score in the first yes. two yes. games he's got like basically a cash register is what he's keeping score on or something and like <laughs> does everybody else know what the score is like are the seekers so laser focused on the snitch that they just they're just like i gotta catch this damn thing like that's all they care about that they're not worried about what the score is it's just like you find the snitch you go for because in theory once the snitch shows up, they're chasing that thing the rest of the match. Like, and that could show up at the beginning. It could show up at the, like there were some matches I want to say in the books they talked about that went on for like months or something. Months. Yes. Like, 
Well, I want to say, I want to like say a game in, of cricket, <laughs> right? I want to say in Quidditch through the ages, um, they went into some detail on um, in regulation play, you have to get past a certain amount of points before a seeker can go catch the snitch. Like they have really? to wait for a certain really? period, like of like like 60 or more or something like that, like 60 to a hundred points have to already be scored prior to you going for the snitch. And also as a seeker, you know, there is, I'm not going to say downtime because there's shit flying around. There's freaking bludgers. There's like players all over the place. You're circling the field. You're also keeping an eye on the other seeker because you want to know that they're not seeing something that you missed. Um, so you want to keep an eye on them. You want to keep an eye on the score and not to mention like, like one thing that Crumb did in that Quidditch World Cup in the book that we never got to see in the movie. I know that's such a letdown, but he does this thing called like the Wonski faint or something like that. And mm. it's the, he just goes into this steep dive out of nowhere. And so the seeker on Ireland thinks that he's like seen the snitch <laughs> and basically he goes for it and winds up the Ireland player almost hits the ground because he thought he was going for the snitch and it was literally just a feint the whole time. Like Crumb didn't see the snitch at all. He just wanted to mess with him. Very similar to Harry in the very first movie, I believe when he catches the snitch, because he goes into like almost a complete swan dive before he pulls up at the last second, I believe. I want to say mm. that's the first movie, but maybe that's an illusion. To the, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Stay tuned for a three hour, you know, conversation on oh Quidditch gosh. game theory. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, but I, I wanted to mention, though, I used to have a book called like Quidditch Through the Ages, and I don't know if this is where I read it, but I think actually, like according to like Potter lore, we'll call it, the shortest game of Quidditch only lasted like a couple of minutes. Oh yeah, I think you're right. So like, I, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, Kevin, if that is true. Your point, other they have to have like a certain amount of points before you can catch the cinch. I don't know. I'm not 100. I'm not 100 yeah, yeah. sure myself, so I could totally mm. be wrong. But I yeah, remember reading I, something about it. Yeah, well, I could also totally be wrong. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea. Um, there's a couple more things I just wanted to point out, though. At least in my personal opinion, I was never really intimidated by Voldemort all that much. Hmm. Just the portrayal of Voldemort. I will say his reintroduction in the Goblet of Fire is very sinister it's very menacing you just you know he's kind of reveling in like i'm back like all my power is here and i have it these are all my followers and like he is a little dramatic in the scene yes but like you're like this is a force to be reckoned with in kill Voldemort. the spam yeah, yes. oh my god oh my god that's too too hi sweet. edward <laughs> <laughs> um, i guess he was team jacob all yeah. along damn but, I, I just think they're they kind of lose focus of how menacing they're supposed to be as the series progresses. Like I'm just not in I'm not intimidated by the Voldemort we get in like the last movies, especially Deathly Hollows part one and two. Like he's again, it kind of goes into overacting to me, which is the same thing I have against Bellatrix's character, mm -hmm. her portrayal at least. Where it's just I'm not I'm not being sold that you're actually this person that I meant to fear, like you're kind of putting on a show, you know, mm. and like you're a terrible planner. Like if you think about Voldemort's plan, especially in the sixth movie, why why does it span an entire year? Why is your plan to let Malfoy, a kid who clearly does not want to be like a part of this at all, despite being like someone who hates Harry? 
to fix this vanishing cabinet. But by the way, uh, Peeves breaks in like either the first or second book. Again, it's not in the movies, but a little fun fact. Peeves is the one who breaks the vanishing cabinet. And oh, where was I going? It just, why does it take so long to do that? And why is Draco the one to do it? And like, because Voldemort is terrified of Dumbledore. And I don't think he could access, you can't operate in and out of Hogwarts unless you're Dumbledore, I believe. So he'd had True. absolutely no way to get there would be my guess, but I'd have to reread the books very carefully to see if there was legitimacy behind that. Plus, was he, well, I guess he technically was about as fully formed as he was going to be after he returned in Goblet. Well, here's mm-hmm. here's the deal. Here's the deal with that. Malfoy was originally set to kill Dumbledore because his father, uh, Lucius, fucked up. Basically, like the whole mm. fiasco at the ministry at the end of the fifth, like leads into it's like he's put Draco in his father's place to get back at Lucius because Voldemort at the end of the day doesn't care whether Draco lives or dies. This is this is payback that Lucius fucked up. So he's basically setting mm. Malfoy on this mission that he's pretty sure is he's probably going to die in the process and Voldemort doesn't give a shit because he's one of his servants. You know what I mean? So it's, it's one of those scenarios of like Draco is the one that went to Morgan and Burks and, you know, like saw the whole vanishing cabinet thing. And he's the one that talked to Montague who got stuck in the vanishing cabinet in, in their fifth year and told him about it. And Malfoy's the one that figured it out. I don't know why it took a whole year, but that was the plot that had to be there. And again, I don't was, know how much of that goes into the films. <laughs> yeah, it was it. Plot convenience is like very hit or miss for me. Sometimes it works very well. Sometimes it's just absolutely horrible. And this is one of the ones I kind of struggle with understanding to where you just happen to have all your Death Eaters come into the castle at the same time where Harry and Dumbledore are off on their mission, um, recovering the locket from the cave. Um, maybe it's tackled in the books. I'm really not sure. Um but like, very, that's a little too convenient for me, you know? Very convenient, for sure. Mm. I'm here for all this super deep-cut talk. This is fantastic. Daniel, mm. anything they could have done better, my friend? Uh, the only the only thing that really comes to mind for me is um, I would have liked the movies to have been longer so that they could have incorporated more material in. Sure. Um, I mean, that, that, go, that goes... That topic is a rabbit hole for me because I think we should bring intermission back into uh, into theater. Um, yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> know. <laughs> yeah, like I, but I would do the dancing llamas. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen a, um, you know, something like what Lord of the Rings did, where they made a whole bunch of material, and uh, you know they they released you know a cut of it, you know a big cut of it, but then like after then afterwards they're like oh. Here's the rest of it, mm-hmm. all of it, like Harry Potter extended edition. There's yes. easily probably somewhere in the range of like an hour to two hours, I would have to assume on each of these films that they probably cut for the sake of probably some executive being like, no, it must be two to two and a half or whatever it was. But I, I 100% agree. I would be there for three to four hours if you if you let mm-hmm. me. <laughs> um, so let's move right along. Um, oh, I, I, I had one more thing, Spencer, if I may. Go right ahead. Quick. Yeah. God damn um, it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> sorry. Um, I'm messing with what, um, to, I'll continue this in a later topic. I know we have, but I just think the overall acting of Half-Blood Prince is fairly dull. 
when you kind of just skim through it, it's just there's again, there's not a lot happening. I think it kind of suffers from like Attack of the Clones syndrome, where it's just way too much plot development, way too much character development. And I think it kind of suffers as also leading up to Deathly Hollows part two. So that's just an opinion I have on Half Blood Prince. I just don't really like the movie. As much as I love Half Blood Prince, I know I'm contradicting myself. It's also my least favorite film in the entire franchise. I just it's dull. It's like what what happens in it is so critically important in his training and stuff. But having said that, really, the important stuff happens in the last 15 minutes of the movie. Right. They go, they they try to get the locket. Dumbledore gets killed. He finds out that Severus is playing the other side and it sets it up for part seven, part one, whatever. Mm. And then that. So you're right in in a big way. And I think this is we were talking about this earlier. I saw the movies in theaters and I didn't own them until much later when I watched them consecutively. So as I'm watching them, when we got to six and seven, part one, I'm like, are we moving along? Like, it's just it was so anticlimactic. But I'm like, even when Dumbledore died, by the time I saw it in theaters, like I know that hit a lot of people hard and stuff, but I knew it was coming. We knew in the books that that's what happened. So I just like it just didn't play as much for me because six seven part one like those are drags of a movie as far as bombast and like excitement goes they're very much i think you put it best like attack of the clones like the second act of attack of the clones is year six and year seven part one like it's just it's quite a quite a uh slog to get through okay and this is a I'm sorry. I'm just always <laughs> interrupting, and I'm so sorry. Um, it kind—I of, had a question that kind of extended off of the executed better. Um, there's obvious plot holes in Harry Potter. I mean, I can't even think of all of them right now. But one thing I really noticed, and again, I'm hating on Half Blood Prince so much, is that <laughs> I think I think Liquid Luck becomes one of the major plot holes throughout the entire series once it's introduced. Mm. Because it kind of seems like it was only God the one mode. It was only the one bottle, the, right? I think. Right. Yes. But here's my thing. I relate it back to Polyjuice Potion, especially in the second movie, where these ingredients to make these potions are supposedly readily available. Like Slughorn in the sixth movie has all the ingredients to make liquid luck. So why Wasn't is it- liquid it was very difficult to brew, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Like, it took a master potion maker. Right, and I understand that. But Harry, at least up until Ginny hides it in the Room of Requirement, has the recipe for it. So why not make more of this potion that is supposed to bring you good luck and good fortune? Like Just like the gold star for Mario. It's like invincibility right. achieved. <laughs> exactly. Like It literally is like a cheat code, and they're like, it's never heard of again they're never considered using it again that is a plot hole i will give you that but they also said it's incredibly dangerous in large quantities oh is it because it's dangerous in large quantities and it's because you know if you're just constantly consuming it you're going to go through your day or your life thinking that you can't die you know you're basically going to think you're invincible and it's going to be an over amount of confidence like, so, like, I can just jump off this bridge. <laughs> yeah, I'll be just fine. Yeah, exactly. It's a like, hippogriff will save me. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, like, in your everyday life. Buckbeak like, ain't here, buddy. <laughs> Goddamn. Buckbeak's in Tampa Bay. He's on sabbatical. <laughs> he ain't coming to get you, bro. 
Enjoy those rocks and those mermaids down there. They're going to eat you up. No, nah, Buckbeak right. is just cr- like crying over Sirius's grave. Shout out. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Too soon. All these damn pumpkins. All right. <laughs> yes. Moving right along. What are some of your favorite sequences? And by that, I mean set pieces. I'll start this one off. I love the chess game. The chess yes, game is by yes. far. Yes. As a huge chess player, I've played chess almost my whole life. I love the chess game. Best chess game Hogwarts has ever seen. That's yeah. where I said that uh, Rupert Grint really shines in Sorcerer's Stone, Philosopher's Stone, whatever. Like, that yeah. is his moment right there. I love when he's it. he's just like, I'll be a knight. Like, yes! Yes! Go for it. <laughs> the chess game, the first time we see Quidditch being played, I think was, you know, just awe-inspiring for a young me I, I was all about that stuff um i'll say the even though it was very short i'd say the the fight at the end of order of the phoenix and i'll start by when they're in the room with all the prophecies all the way through where cornelius fudge shows up and he just goes he's, he's back like and he finally rescinds on his kind of you know just denying that stuff's going on i think that's great um I, it's a very quick moment, but when Harry's going after Snape, after Snape kills Dumbledore, he's like, how could you? And he's just like, <laughs> and he tries to use Sectumsemper on him. And he's like, oh, you're not going to use mine on me, bro. Like, yeah. I invented that. That's mine. You can't do that to me. And he just, <laughs> he's just gone. <laughs> um, I thought that was really cool. And I I, I just got to say, the, the whole end of... I mean, I'm talking from the second Harry shows up at Hogwarts in seven part two. And he's like, how dare you stand where he stood kind of thing. And McGonagall steps out and she's like, like taking him out from that point all the way until, you know, Neville chops off Nagini's head. I'm, I'm there for it the whole way through. I think as much as, you really needed a lot of backstory. You needed to have read to really fully appreciate. And I know that's not great with movies. You really want to just get all the emotion from the movies. And I think you do to some extent. I, that just totally paid off for me. I was I was there for all of it. But uh, we started the last section. So we were on number seven now. So it should be Austin first this time, I believe. Me. Okay. You definitely hit a couple of mine. Again, pulling out my notes. Um, for me, at least the best sequence throughout the entire franchise is the entirety of the Shrieking Shack. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. you have you have our three main characters, Harry, Ron, Hermione. You have Gary Oldman. You have, I'm going to get his name wrong, David Thewlis, I think, I think his that's name right. is. Yep. And um, again, I can't remember Peter Pettigrew's actor's name. And then you have Alan Rickman. And I think just everything happening in that room is so tense and it's executed perfectly. Because you're just on edge for like everything, the entire like everything changes at that moment too. Like yes. everything, the whole movie was set up one way, and then in the last whatever twenty minutes of that movie, it's like nope. Right, it's like the last third of that movie. It's just like oh, uh, things Peter, really get going. Peter Pettigrew is Timothy Small. Thank you. Good. Call. Go. I know it was said earlier, but it was so long ago. I just oh. I have horrible memory. <laughs> um, that's my personal favorite. I, you're you're gonna get the idea that prisoner of azkaban is my favorite movie um but the dementor on the train on the hogwarts express when you first get that shot of it coming into frame and opening the door that is so eerie that is so creepy Mm -hmm. um 
um, the spiders with the Chamber of Secrets with Harry and Ron and the Ford Aguilar. Is that what it is? Anglia, Ford Anglia. Anglia. Follow the spiders. Why couldn't it be follow the butterflies? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then another scene that I thought this would be my last one. I also had wizard chess. Um, but I think Sirius's uh, death is just done beautifully. And like, what really gets me worked up and gets me emotional is seeing characters' reactions to people's deaths. And like, just real quick, Gears of War three, Dom, like watching oh, like Marcus yeah. react, like that's mm-hmm. what gets me worked up. But like, how everything just cuts to silence, and you just see Lupin holding Harry back from like all this like rage and pain that he's feeling. It's just like that. It, because he just kind of like he gets he gets hit with the avada kedavra so you know he's dead but Mm -hmm. then he just kind of like leans back and gets carried away through the veil and you're like Mm -hmm. yeah and in the in the book it's very memorable in the book where harry is having this like i think it is at least an internal debate where like sirius is going to come back like any minute like there's this veil and like he'll be back like any minute and he's just waiting and waiting and like Sirius just doesn't come back. Well, doesn't he have a? He has a conversation with Dumbledore. He's like, "Wait, but it's nearly headless Nick and all these ghosts. He could come back as a ghost, right?" And he's just like, mm, "I no, nope." And just you don't really get a reason why. It's just like not everybody, because he didn't have unfinished business. I don't believe and stuff like that. I think that's one of the big qualifiers for who gets to stay as a ghost is like whether or not you accomplished everything and. I mean, Sirius knew that Harry was in good hands, I think. Like, he wasn't there Mm -hmm. to... By that point, he had his friends. He had the Order. I could probably go on and on, but absolutely. That's a great scene. And Mm -hmm. as, like, the split second before he gets hit by Bellatrix, and he's like, you know, him and Harry are, like, back-to-back, like, going after the Death Eaters, and Mm -hmm. he's like, nice one, James. And then, boom, he gets hit, and he's done. It's just, like, Mm -hmm. so many emotions. Oh, my God. Yeah, it would have been a real treat to see McGonagall and Harry do the same exact thing in uh, um, part two, especially in like the whole Snape and with the what are the, what are the name the Callows the twins. Um, oh, uh, the Caros, the Caros. Caros. Yes. I said what did I say Callows. Yeah, it would be nice if like they weren't taken out um, so quick and just see the two of them. You have head of Gryffindor House, and then you've had this kid who struggled with the identity of being a true Gryffindor or not. Just like duking it out against the bad guys, like that would have just been a nice little like, like little cherry on top for me. I like it, Daniel. But wishful thinking. Favorite set pieces. Uh, well, you already mentioned the chess match. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the final fight scene um, of uh, part two, and those those are going to be my uh, those going to be my two big ones. Um, can, although can we all agree that the chess scene is probably the best scene. <laughs> I think it's so good, especially especially if you're a chess player and you know you've been playing chess games since you were a kid. Um, you know, like that scene, like seeing something, seeing something from your childhood incorporated into uh, something else from your childhood. It you know it was it was really cool. Um, one scene that we haven't mentioned uh, yet, and this is, and uh, I suppose this is like more of a, a more of something in the books that I liked, but something it brought to life on film was um, Umbridge being carried off by the centaurs. Yes. <laughs> it just feels like a personal victory, even though you have nothing to do with it. It might be fan like, service. Yes! Mm-hmm. It might be fan service, but it was well-earned. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. in the books Actually, too, that they'd like, they make the coconut sounds like the, the, the clopping mm-hmm. and she's like. <laughs> <laughs> 
a quick note i actually have a replica of the chess set Oh, yes. um, nice. it's it's not like a legit like it's like all plastic and everything like something i probably got at walmart but yeah it's like an exact. i, I actually think i used to have one of those too like and i think it was like at one of the christmases that i was at like with like wendy and bj and all, like with everybody i feel like i got it at that like i actually i think it was henry's but i have a lord of the rings one actually sitting right over there that's very very similar but yeah, nothing. Uh, nothing builds tension like potentially seeing an eleven-year-old's head get lopped off with a ten-foot steel broadsword. <laughs> Kevin, that is how I learned fish. to play chess. Yeah, hey, it and, and one one wrong move, and they were screwed. Like it was over. Oh yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Kevin. What do you got? Um. So this is like simply for the sake of the film, like because like like from reading the books, like it really doesn't make any sense in the film. But it's just a scene that I really grew to love, like in the way that they did it in the movie was um, the night bus in the third film. And it's just like, and that thing is just like, take it away, Ernie. You know? Take it away, Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Little old lady at 12 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. It's just like. The leaky so cauldron, random. he says. <laughs> yes, the leaky cauldron. Yes. Um, let's see. What is the other one? Um Oh, um, I'm going to say um, the basilisk in the second film, um, that whole fight sequence. I mean, Harry has to make sure to like look away and then and then Fox comes in and saves him, you know, like by getting his eyes out. And he's like seeing that just in the shadow. Like that is so well like thought out. And, you know, it's very well choreographed. I mean, that's not the strongest Harry Potter movie, but the, the third act is very strong, I would say. And I yes. just, I love the character or the design of the basilisk. Like that thing was imposing. Oh yes. hundred percent. Like I was definitely afraid as a kid. And the other thing too, is that um, what plays a factor in all of that is when he takes that basilisk fang and he stabs that diary, you are seeing for the first time a Horcrux get destroyed. Like that is like, and that plays a factor later. That's why JK Rowling stuff mm -hmm. is so good. She plays elements from the original to the end, and they do portray that in the movie. So I love that they kept that in there, you know? Oh, 100%. Like, Here's a, uh, a quick question, because I want to keep this thing moving. We've, we have been hitting this hard, and I love it. I'm here for yes. all of it. Yeah. Do you think Michael Gambon did a good job? This can even be a yes or no if you want. Do you think he did a good job filling in for Richard Harris as Dumbledore? I would say yes. <laughs> Yes, but real quick, I just want to say the Richard Harris Dumbledore is the Dumbledore that is in my head when I am reading the books. I would agree with that. Agreed. I well, I any, have any more comments? You got okay, one? I have I have one example of where Michael Gambon is a horrible Dumbledore, and this one instance is in the fourth movie when Harry's name gets drawn out of the Goblet of Fire. And Michael Gambon runs at Harry. He shakes him, like basically manhandles him, and then is like, Harry, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? There is no way that Albus Dumbledore would ever rough, like be rough with a student. There is no way that that would ever happen. That so, is, oh, go ahead. Sorry. So that's, so that is my one issue with Michael Gambon. Other than that, though, I think he did a good job, although one person that I would have liked to play Dumbledore after Richard Harris would be Ian McKellen, but he can't be Gandalf and Dumbledore. Oh, it would just man. be too oh. much. Oh, don't <laughs> even. Oh, oh, God. That is a problem. Nerdgasm. Yeah, that, just... 
<laughs> it is a problem that resonates with a lot of fans actually if you go on like top lists of like movie mistakes or film adaptations that are different from the book like that's on everyone's top 10 lists where like because in the book it says dumbledore asked calmly did you put your name in the goblet of fire so mm-hmm. yeah. all right uh did daniel yeah. did you want to touch on that did you like michael gambin you see uh so back when i was watching it um Back when I was watching the movies, I honestly uh, wasn't like, I honestly didn't uh, didn't really learn anyone's names. You know, I just, you know, I was just watching them for entertainment value. And when they changed Dumbledore up, honestly, I, I didn't realize until later I was like reading an article and they're like, oh yeah, halfway through, um, they had to replace Dumbledore. I'm like, what? <laughs> and then I went back and watched. I'm like, oh. Am I mistaken in saying that that was why there was a little bit of a delay between two and three? Or is it because they changed directors? I don't really remember. But I feel like there was like a an extra year maybe between the two. I don't know. All I know, I do remember even being so young, remembering the news broadcast on whatever channel it was at the time where, you know, Richard Harris has passed away. And I remember my mom telling me all about it, too. I don't know if there was any sort of delay. Yeah, no, he was. Know. Richard Harris is a treasure. I rest in peace legend um so i'm gonna ask these two questions at the same time because i think they really just fit into each other really well but um first off do you think deathly hallows should have been two movies and two do you like how it how it resolves itself at the end of deathly hallows part two and just like as a the end of the whole franchise or at least this segment of the franchise we'll talk about fantastic beasts in just a minute but do you like how it ended? Do you think that needed to be two parts? What uh, what say you, Daniel? So um, so I'm not usually a fan of uh of two part movies. You know, I think I touched this earlier. You know how I want intermission to come back. You know to you know for movies you know based on books to just be longer because they just have more material. Um, one of the biggest one of the biggest issues I had with uh with the first movie was it ends on such a sorrowful note when Dobby dies, and like. No, I don't want to walk out of the movie theater, you know, being all sad and shit. <laughs> like you have to wait another year to see what happens. Yeah. They don't even bury him for a year. Like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no. And um and so like with, with Deadly Hollows, I would have preferred for it to be just, you know, one super movie. <laughs> I'm with you. Know, you. If plays on Broadway can be two parts in four hours apiece in one sitting, give me give me that. I'm yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Don't let don't let Dobby just be a dead elf for a whole year. <laughs> don't do him like that. Kevin, yeah, no. what say you, man? Um, I was actually for it. Um, because what I was afraid that they were gonna do, I was afraid that they were gonna make it too short by trying to squeeze everything into, you know, two and a half hours. You know, I was afraid that they weren't gonna add all the elements that they needed to. And like, and it, going off of what Daniel just said, like, yes, that whole like waiting a year thing is awful but at least we had some knowledge of what was going to happen um if we're going to go into like the nerd spiral here it's like it's like at the end of infinity war we were just like what the fuck is happening that. and we're like and then like we had to wait for Endgame and like wonder what happened to everybody mr so- stark i don't feel so good all <laughs> 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 oh, the memes that came out of that <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah so i i think they did i think i it was a good choice to have it in two parts i think it was i don't think it was like for a money grab i think it was because they wanted to do it right 
I would agree with that mostly. I think yeah. generally it was because that book is so dense and because they probably really wanted to go hard with the end of all of it. And they probably, the only way they could finagle that with the executives is say, hey, let's do two movies. And that way we can do one that's pretty much all exposition and one that's all spectacle um, would be my take. But Austin, you have any thoughts on that, man? Um, no, I look at Deathly Hollows part one and two as like watching like a Broadway production where just you need that intermission because as much as I love watching Return of the King in all three hours and 30 minutes of its glory, um, it is a long movie. And I think there is so much information in the Deathly Hollows and there is so much to wrap up and make sure that everything wraps up nicely. You need that extra time to tell the story. And I think part one, it's not my favorite movie, of course, um, but it does show the desperation and the cluelessness that the characters have as to like what they're supposed to be doing. You know, Dumbledore kind of didn't clue them in on really anything. They have nothing to go on other than like, this is what you're doing. And I think to really drive that point home, Deathly Hollows part one had to happen. I agree. Very true. One thing I thought was really interesting that I had read is that it's very, very subtle, but they didn't allow them to, like i'm sure they still went in for makeup and stuff but they didn't let them cut their hair they didn't let them shave all that stuff to really give it the atmosphere that they are on the run and they're on the run for like a year like almost the whole year i'm pretty sure the battle of hogwarts happens at the very end of year seven if i'm not mistaken like they, they they've been on the run just living out in the tent in the wilderness for close to a year at that point i think because They've been hunting these things to almost no avail at that point, but um, great. Moving right along. That was two of the questions. This is really quick. Cause I know that I believe Austin, you said you haven't seen the fantastic beast movies. No. So I'll probably sit this part out. Okay. Um, I'll go to Kevin first on this one then. Um, what did you think of those movies? Have you seen them thoughts real quick? I mean, not like in depth or anything, but just like, are you a fan and also, you know, are you excited about, I don't know, anybody's really excited per se, but what are your thoughts on Mads Mikkelsen taking over Johnny Depp's role as Grindelwald? Um, so the Fantastic Beasts uh, franchise, like, I, I enjoyed the first film, but, like, I'm also, like, anytime they try to, like, like take a Potter universe film, it's always a little, like, wonky in my opinion. It's, like, but no, like I like the creatures. I liked the general plot of the first, and the second one is like, like that's all fine and dandy. But like they're trying to, and I guess Rowling is in on this. But like for the second one, what kind of bothered me was like, if there was some like spell or thing that prevented Dumbledore from going after Grindelwald, it's like, well, I, I don't know. Like no, like it, because what he specifically says in the books is like he couldn't face Grindelwald because of his own shame, not because of some magical spell. It was his own shame and fear of the fact that, like, one of them killed Dumbledore's sister. It was an accident, but none of them know who it was that killed him. So it was Dumbledore's shame and guilt that prevented him from going to see Grindelwald, not some spell. So the fact that they're trying to, like, play this whole franchise based off of that. Also, if you go and you look at, like, the memory of Dumbledore in the second movie like of him like being younger and it's like 
it's like, oh, wow, you're this young guy in a suit, like in, in this franchise. It just seems very odd to me. But otherwise, does, doesn't Harry Potter take place in like, like the 60s or something? Like it's not very no, it's modern. Uh, Is it the 90s? I mean, it. it yeah, I think. The, Late I think, 80s, early 90s, yes. I think the Deathly Hollows Part 2 wraps up around the same time that like Sorcerer's Stone is released like in the real world. Mm. I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, that makes I, sense. It seems very modern by the time he's like, you know, in the underground having that conversation with the chick that he gets cock blocked with. But Daniel, <laughs> uh, any thoughts on Fantastic Beasts as a whole? What what do you say? See, so I actually really liked the uh, I really liked the characters, and this might might be an unpopular opinion. Um, like I liked um, I like Newt particularly. I like you know that they they have someone who's you know who's incredibly gentle and you know is very misunderstood. Um, you know as the uh, as the main character, uh, but at the same time, like you know, despite despite um him being gentle, you know he's also out there like going and doing incredibly dangerous things. Like uh, to uh, to help and basically conserve animals, um, but uh, but yeah, the uh, the one major note that I that I wasn't too uh, thrilled about when I saw the second one was that the first one, like uh, the first one, you know, had a lot of happy in it, and then the second one is a bit murdery, <laughs> and uh, there's a ton of fan service in the second one too that felt a little misplaced. It's like, yeah, no, it was just a very, very stark contrast. Um, and, uh, and like, you know, because I, you know, I saw the first one and I got in the movie theater watching the second one. I'm like, wow. OK, all right. That, that's where we're. Oh, oh. Uh, cool. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts on that or not really? I will say that uh, similar to you in the first Fantastic Beasts, my favorite part of it, I think, is the relationship between, I think her name is Queenie, and then whoever Newt's, like, buddy, the nomad. Sidekick. Yeah, I forget his name, and I forget the, the actor's name, but he is hilarious. Like, every time he shows up in something, you know, fanboys, Walking Dead, Balls of Fury, he is hilarious. Good luck, Chuck. I mean, that dude is funny. Um, yes. But their relationship is great. The only other thing I'll say about Fantastic Beast, besides kind of the fan servicey stuff, because I don't know why you necessarily need, like, Nicola Flamel and Ezra Miller is suddenly a Dumbledore, but he's also this like demonic hell beast thing from the first one and stuff like that. But um, I think JK Rowling had a lot of good ideas. I think she should have really sat down and put them into book form for us to digest before they did them. Um, I think there is that little like, 20 page fantastic beast like mini book that's out there somewhere from like way back when but i think she really would have it really would have benefited the audience i think a lot to have time to read those books beforehand because then we're sitting there looking at like oh my gosh look at all this stuff that we read about and that you know we would have i think really appreciated more because clearly the tapestry and all that is there because they are dense films but we don't really have that same appreciation just because we haven't had time to sit with the characters and really get into them. And again, there's only so much you can do in what is supposed to be, you know, a two hour epic fantasy film. And if there's nothing to build upon besides the fan service of like, 
oh yeah, here's Grindelwald, here's Dumbledore, and like Newt Scamander, and I don't know. That's my own opinion. And very very quickly, what are your guys' thoughts on how the fandom, you know, should or shouldn't react to J.K. Rowling's kind of controversies that she's been stirring up over the past couple of years on her like her transphobic comments and stuff like that like how do you think that if like hopefully not a too terribly long dissertation because i don't want to like dwell on this part of the fandom but where do you think that fits into everything let's start with austin on this one um to be honest i don't have much of an opinion i don't agree with hers necessarily um, I'm in full support of, I guess it was more along the like LGBTQ community. Um, I have absolutely no issue. I'm perfectly fine with that community. Um, I know I'm not trying to throw statistics in here, but I know like the LGBTQ community is obviously a part, not all of it, of course. I'm really, I'm really trying to, you know, be respectful when I say all this. Of course. But I know there are quite a few people of that community that are also harry potter fans Mm -hmm. and like jk rowling is a role model to these people so in a way i understand it probably hurts to hear someone that you look up to you know have a different opinion than yours but at the same time it is someone's opinion i'm not trying to defend her i it's so hard to have an opinion because a i'm not someone that she's referring to specifically when she makes these comments and B it's just like, yes, I am a part of the Harry Potter fandom, but it's just like, I don't very, know. It's, it's a it's, very it's, nuanced it's, conversation, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Daniel, it's like, I, do you have any, do you have any thoughts, Daniel? Um, well, this is, so I'm, I'm going to relate this back to, uh, to something in the military actually. Um, so in the military, others are saying that uh, we don't really, it's like we might not agree with what you say, but we'll fight for your right to defend it. And so um, so how I'm going to relate that back to this is I don't agree with what she says, but uh, at the same time, um, like, you know, I enjoy the content that she makes, you know, and it's, and, uh, and I, I guess it's kind of, you know, a, a little bit of a cognitive dissonance um, for me, but like at the same time, like I still, I still want to see um, like the good that she puts into the world through these Harry Potter books. Like, and so she has this opinion that you know a lot of people uh, think of as negative, think of as a bad thing, um, but she does a lot of good too. And so it's, you know, uh, it, it's it's like everything; it's a mixed bag. Of course, Kevin. Yeah. Um... <clears throat> I don't have too much of an opinion myself. Um, I just, I know, like, you know, I myself am a very big proponent of the LGBTQ community. And, like, it does kind of, it, it does kind of, I would say, like, you know, yes, it's her opinion. Um, you know, I, I, and she's certainly entitled to it. But, yeah, it does kind of suck to hear that. But also, it's like, I just, it, it's like, it's like you guys were saying, it's like, you know, I love that, like, I love the world that she's created and I love all the good that she's done. And it's just like, you know, she's, I don't think that in the statement that she made, like she's trying to like bring anybody like down with it or like create some movement to prevent anyone from doing what they want to do. 
So do I need do I think the statement needed to be said? No, but she is entitled to her opinion. So I feel like I'm kind of in the middle. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's difficult to really grasp, I think, the magnitude and how it really affects people when a group like us right now are four privileged Caucasian males. <laughs> not a members of the LGBTQ community. So I certainly would not presume to tell anybody how to feel. Um, but just my, you know, armchair quarterback's opinion of it would just be that I think kind of like you guys said in some ways, but that these movies and this franchise really is, is so entertaining for a lot of people. It means a lot to a lot of people. And that goes for a lot of different franchises and shows and fandoms across the entire spectrum that some there's plenty of knuckleheads who say stupid things and I will never sit here and defend them. But it was just something that I wanted to get your guys's quick opinions on. I know it wasn't part of the, the pre-production uh, notes or anything, but I was just very curious. And I think it's, you know, this is the world we live in and it's important to address these and call people out and hold them accountable where uh, we need to. But and last thing I'll say about it, I think there's so many people who work on these projects, whether it's the, the games, the, the publishers who, who, who do the, you know, the revisions and everything for these books and the people, obviously the armies of people who work on these movies, I would be hard pressed to think that they should be penalized by no new content because one lady said some really idiotic stuff. But that's, again, just my opinion. And I welcome everybody to let us know what your opinions are, because this is a conversation I think that needs to be ongoing and a respectful one. I respect everybody's opinion. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it's something we can address and move on so that we don't run into this kind of ignorance down the road would be my, my hope. Um, so quickly moving on well, to some, well said, well said. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, real quick, everybody's pumped for the Hogwarts legacy video game. I would assume. Correct. Oh my God. I watched the trailer right before this conversation started and just real quick. My thing is, um, is there a gameplay trailer released yet or have we just gotten like the teaser trailer? I think just the teaser. And I actually, I think the okay. game got delayed to either 20, I think it's in 2022 now, if I'm not mistaken, but I did want to bring that up. Cause I know I'm, I saw that trailer and I was like, <laughs> like I'm, one, I'm here for it. One thing I loved about um, Skyrim, just quick tangent was that that world felt lived in. Like you created an avatar for yourself to live in. And if the Hogwarts Legacy game is anything of that caliber of that Skyrim was, I'm all for it. I will sink over however many hours I sank into Skyrim, but in a Harry Potter universe. Fallout 5, Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> um, we're going we're gonna to wrap pretty soon, so I want to kind of skip past. We were going to talk about what we might want to see out of this uh, recently announced HBO Max series for Harry Potter, which I'm excited to see what comes of that. We don't really have a whole lot of information on that right now. So we're going to probably table that for right now, just so we can get into what is always my favorite part, which is rankings. And I don't necessarily need everybody's full eight rankings because we're not camp fantastic beasts for the purpose of this. I'm mispronouncing things right now. I apologize, but give me, Top three films, top three characters, not performances, characters. And I want to start with Daniel on this one. Daniel, take it away. 
All right. Uh, top three films. Um, Deathly Hallows Part 2, Order of the Phoenix, and um, Prisoner of Azkaban uh, for top three films. Um, top three characters. Uh, and then, um, see, well, Harry Potter, you know, because, you know, they, because uh, she, uh, she made that character because, you know, people, she made that character, you know, for people to relate to. And of course, you know, relate to the character. Um, Luna Lovegood for precisely the same reason. <laughs> and, um, you know, honestly, like I wouldn't have said this uh, a few years ago, but nowadays, Neville Longbottom. Mm. Like, you know, just his his arc is a beautiful thing. Tremendous picks all around. Question, expand on what, what about Order of the Phoenix do you like so much? Let me see. Uh, I liked how Order of the Phoenix, you know, so before in um, so in books one through four, you know, it was kind of just, you know, Harry was kind of just reacting to whatever, you know, Voldemort threw at him. In Order of the Phoenix, it felt, you know, more like it felt a lot more organized. You know, mm. uh, Harry's um, it's not so much a response. It was a, you know, proactive. Um, it was a proactive engagement, uh, you know, to try and fight the Dark Lord, you know, um, and so it. And so I, I liked watching. I liked seeing that. Um, also, I liked the battles. 100%. I think uh, two of my favorite parts from that movie specifically are, like you were just saying, it's kind of like the Order of the Phoenix is really like the Rebel Alliance of the Wizarding World. And I love the fact that not only was it like being restarted and kind of reorganized in that book, but also like the history of the Order and like who was actually a part of it, like that Wormtongue was in the order and like Snape was in the order of one it's craziness. I, I love that kind of stuff, but also I think Dumbledore's army isn't something we really touched on, but that is probably one of yes. my favorite things. Yes. And the, the meme obviously that comes out of Dumbledore being like, <laughs> I think you are laboring under the delusion that I'm going to come quietly. <laughs> Smack. <laughs> one of the, one of the greatest, like, 10 second scenes but anyways uh kevin top three movies top three characters fire away okay i'm gonna go with um one two and four uh for my favorite movies like just the first two like really embody the essence of harry potter to me and then um when you get into the fourth like yes obviously there's the element of darkness but the whole triwizard tournament scene like i wanted to see that so badly what they were going to do with it like putting it in a film. And I think they really nailed it, you know, with the Triwizard Tournament. I loved, you know, the fact that he's like, you know, he's flying around a dragon and he's diving into a lake with all the, you know, like we loved that stuff reading it. And then we got to see it on screen and just the maze. It was, it was amazing. Ah, ah, ah. Ah, was it the horn Hungarian horn tail? Was that what? Correct. Yep. Oh man. What a great, what a what a great sequence that was! <laughs> I know. Um, pull the dragon out of the bag and see what's going to eat you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I love that. A... Oh my gosh! And it was like um, I didn't know that they were going to have it where like they were like live dragons. So that was a nice touch in the film because I think in the um, in the books it was just they were just like statues of them. But yeah, like these moved. I love that. Because um, why wouldn't they? I mean, wizards' chess and paintings and everything. It just it all makes so much sense. Exactly. Um, and then I'll go um, three favorite characters. Um, uh, I'm going to say um, probably my number one is Ron. 
Um, just for all the reasons we said earlier, just wonderful. And, you know, Rupert Grint played him so well and, you know, but, um, and then, uh, you know, Harry is definitely my second. Um, and then, um, you know, through and through, um, I gotta say, I loved Emma Watson as Hermione. So I will, I will say that the the main three as are my favorites. (laughs) Hey, nothing wrong with that. I think it's fair. Question for you. Do you think the first two you hold in such high regard because they probably hold the most nostalgia? And I would say probably other than maybe the last four films that David Yates, I think, did all four of those. I think those two are of more of a piece than than the rest because they're just like so tonally similar. And what do you think any of that plays into it that they're probably yes, you but- sat with them the longest? Yes, the nostalgia factor is definitely big for me. Um, I um, this is something like with Christopher Columbus um, directing them. I think that it does play like you know he directed some of the great like family movies that we know, and I consider those two movies like very like family oriented in watching them. So there is that theme in those of like that, and just like the authenticity of like, um, you know, having them all wear the Hogwarts robes, like very, very strictly, like, and then, and then um, something that was strange to me in the other films is like, the layout of Hogwarts and the grounds was one way in the first two, and then yep. all of a sudden, the third comes in, and, and all of a sudden, the entire layout of Hogwarts is completely changed. And you're just like, what is happening with this layout of Hogwarts? But anyway, yeah, I think I think that plays a huge part in it. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. I was going to say something else, but I totally forgot about, oh, just the fact that, I mean, like, you know, as we've touched on it, but as you go along in the movies, they get darker and darker and darker until like the last 10, 15 minutes of part two of book seven, they are, they get really, really dark. So those first two were really the like most accessible for the younger audience, especially like, you know, the under 13 audience, I think, because I could watch those. I could probably show both of those to my four-year-old and be okay but you go past well, I that i will say i will say though when i first saw the first one in theaters though i was scared of voldemort coming out the back of you know um uh Quirrell's what's his face Quirrell. his tur- yeah Quirrell's turban so like that was there were scary elements in all of them actually you know and the basilisk in the second i mean there there were suspenseful scenes in both of those but it's the fact that like, and I think the scariest part is not just the the out of the head, but you think Voldemort is gone. And the next thing you know, there's that like, ah, and the ghost is like coming at him. And, like, so that scared me as a kid too. So. And it's totally different now seeing them for the first time on a home theater. Even I have a really good home theater, but even that is not the same as seeing it in like a Dolby surround sound theater as a, like a 10 year old. Yeah. Yes. And, I remember just, I, I heard about the Voldemort eating the unicorn's blood and I was like, what are we getting into? And that was- Oh, that was scary. That was a scary sequence too. That yeah. was scary. Yeah. Austin. Okay. I'm going to break the rules a little bit. I'm going to give you all eight films, but I'm only going to elaborate on why number one is my number one. Fair enough. So I have Half-Blood Prince, Deathly Hollows Part 1, Order of the Phoenix, Deathly Hollows Part 2, Chamber of Secrets, Philosopher's Stone, Goblet of Fire, Prisoner of Azkaban, from worst to best. Um, The reason I really love Azkaban so much, and it really does flip-flop between that and Goblet of Fire, is that that's where I think that the series as a whole really got the ball rolling. And I think more was introduced into the world 
rather than just the magic of the world that is Harry Potter. It's like the first two movies are all about the magic and establishing like Hogwarts as a setting and just the world that we will exist in for the rest of the movies. But prisoner of Azkaban introduced like lots of tension and like even death and backstabbing and snitching. No pun, of course, (laughs) (laughs) but that's, that's when I think like, okay, the situation's actually getting serious. Like Harry is in for more than he's bargaining for right now. And that's where like a lot of characters who will eventually play bigger parts in later movies really start to come into the picture. Um, so, and then as far as characters go, I have, I had four, I'll just say Luna, Hagrid, Sirius, and Lupin are like my top four. I think Hagrid is the most symbolic, one of the most symbolic characters of especially the early movies. I would say actually the first movie in particular kind of belongs to Hagrid. Um, I love Luna. She's so quirky, but she's so witty and weird. And I think she was a very nice addition. She really gave Harry someone to relate to for the first time. I feel where she's like, I think she's where their first, sorry, when he meets the Thestrals the second time, in the forbidden forest where she says, you're just as sane as I am. (laughs) (laughs) But like you hear that coming from Luna and you're like, what? (laughs) You're you're just so out there. Um, What what did she say? I, 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 I I think Narflats or whatever are, what, what was she saying? Nargles. Nargles. Yeah. Yeah. Nargles. (laughs) I I suppose it's like, I predict Nargles are responsible. Yeah. (laughs) Would you like a quibbler? I love her. I'm so glad that they uh, included her giant, like, Gryffindor lion head that she wears at the Quidditch yes. games. Like, that was such a good mm-hmm. deep cut. But um, mm-hmm. real quick for me, I will just say, and there's there is just a never-ending list of honorable mentions for my my favorite characters and stuff. But my top three characters have to be Voldemort, in no particular order. Voldemort, I love Voldemort so much just because he's such an interesting character. Um, Dumbledore, because it's Dumbledore and there's so much we still don't even know about him and he was such a huge part of these and anytime there's like an old wizard type whether it's obi-wan kenobi or gandalf that's my dude um yes and then i'm sorry but emma watson and hermione granger is bay like Mm -hmm. she's the princess leia of this franchise she's so smart she's so like able and just like the the, they they don't survive the first movie, let alone all seven without her. Like they they're dead. They're dead in the uh, oh gosh, what is it? The Devil's Snare. Devil's Snare. Yes. Uh-huh. They're dead. They're dead in the Devil's Snare. Yep. They're just to, done. But uh, yeah. And then as far as the movies go, I have to say three would be Goblet of Fire. Two is Deathly Hallows Part Two because there's just payoffs galore in that. And then um. One is Prisoner of Azkaban. I mean, I think Alfonso Cuaron, he did change everything. And it was very shocking. It's still shocking to watch one, two, and then you jump to three and it's like, what? Like, did, did somebody, like whoever the land, like, I mean, technically Hagrid is the lands or the groundskeeper and everything. But it's like, yes. did he just get like really drunk one day and like just <laughs> bridge something? Like just, just totally remodeled everything. But um, Prisoner of Azkaban is where it, it's actually the only one like Voldemort is like a he's a he's a character in the sense of like he's his 
legacy and everything is present, but he, that's the only one that he's not in. Um, And I, I I think that's why it's so interesting is because like, that's one of the few opportunities in the entire series. That's not like Harry versus Voldemort. This is Harry versus like who he thought killed his parents or thought sold him out, but it's not them. And as a matter of fact, it was their other best friend who has been Ron's rat this whole time for two movies. (laughs) Yes. Like, one of the original, a young, a younger Spencer's mind just like exploding. Like, there's a, what's an animagus? Like, wait, Scabbers is a snitch? Like, it's just yes. Wait, and then, wait, um, Ron, the, the doesn't time... your your rat has one missing toe or something? Like, yeah, yeah, the middle finger. Um, but also the whole um the time turner aspect of that. Like, reading that as a kid mm-hmm. was like mind-blowing i was like they're going back in time what like well and you legit in the movie specifically you legit think buckbeat's dead for about 20 minutes and then they they go and they save him and i mean we didn't even really get into it i wish i would have thought to ask like creature designs and stuff but hippogriffs and buckbeat specifically like that's one of the best most iconic i would say character designs of the whole franchise but um any other quick honorable mentions before we wrap this, boys? I have a quick question, if I may. It can be a simple yes or no. That's fine. Um, at the end of Deathly Hollows Part 2 with the Resurrection Stone, do you think anyone is missing from that scene in particular when you have Remus, Sirius, James, and Lily? Do you think anyone is missing, or like, do you think that was perfect the way it was? I'd say it's perfect because he talks to Dumbledore in like the World Between Worlds type train station that he's at. And that would be the only other one I would think of that needed to be there. Maybe Snape, but he that's, just... That's what I was going to ask. He like, just had that moment with him, so I tend to think no. I think that's, I tend to think as like maybe a moment of like reconciliation or forgiveness. Like, I've kind of thought you were a terrible person this whole time, but actually you were well, really and- on... Those four, those four people were the ones who he was most closely connected with, not the ones who looked out for him the most. Like Snape looked out for him a lot, but like so did Tonks, so did Mad Eye Moody, so did who died? Fred or George? I can't remember. Fred. Fred dies. I mean, you could you could make the argument that there could have been like a whole posse of people, like twenty people there, but I think it the symmetry looked good. But anyways. Thank you guys, Kevin, Daniel. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. You'll have to come back and we'll have to do this more. We're going to hopefully find some time to do these movies one by one because there's just so much to cover. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to everybody who's watching. Have a great night. Peace. Have a magic night. <laughs> I guess. Thanks so much, guys.